You're listening to the Vineyard Milwaukee podcast. For more information about Vineyard Milwaukee Church, visit vineyardmilwaukee.com. Now here's this week's message. Over this past year, or maybe even over the past decade, you may have found yourself um, seeing images in the news or on people's uh, Facebook posts um, where that have stirred up all kinds of emotions in you, where you've seen uh, Christian symbols or even maybe even Bible verses used to support someone's agenda or idea that seems to be in direct opposition to the very uh, Christian symbol that, that it represents. Um, I'm sure most of you are familiar with some of these um, kinds of controversial mixture of Christian symbols with ideologies that came out during the Capitol riots. Um, here's a couple pictures from that riot. And these, these images for you and the ideologies they represent may stir up all kinds of feelings. For some people, embarrassment. Some people, just even just a deep sorrow. Uh, for others, especially young adults, it may have even stirred up questions about the faith you grew up in and the faith that you've signed up for and whether you really want to be part of this anymore. You know, there's a group of pastors following the riots at the Capitol building said there is a version of American nationalism that is trying to camouflage itself as Christianity, and it is a heretical version of our faith. But what if we were to take that statement and just tweak it a bit to say, there is a version of American pro- progressivism that is trying to camouflage itself as Christianity, and it is a heretical version of our faith. What about an image like this? How does that leave you feeling? The truth is we live in this age of ideology on both the left and the right. And for many of us, we find ourselves kind of leaning away from a particular ideology that we find disturbing, that we, we find total um, an opposition to our faith and to, and to what we believe. And so we, as a result, we may find that we feel like we have to lean into the opposing ideology. So whether you would find yourself, um, you consider something on the side of the right that you find extreme or or really disturbing. And so you would find yourself leaning the other way. Or if you find that you're leaning away from the hostility on the left, you may think that the only option for you is to lean fully and completely into the other team, into the other side. You lean away from one camp, you have to find yourself joining the other camp. So in other words, I'm disturbed by some ideologies I've seen on the right, and so I feel like I have to lean fully into the beliefs of the left or vice versa. I grew up believing that the left was morally bankrupt, and so in order to lean away from that, I have to adopt all the thinking and ideology of the right. And What I want us to consider today is what if the answer to our rejection of a disturbing ideology that doesn't sit right with us, that seems in opposition to what we believe, in opposition to our faith, um, what if it, this kind of ideology where there seems to be this uh, mixed, mixture of Christianity with an agenda that does not reflect the person of Jesus, but what if it isn't found, the answer to that isn't found into leaning fully into the opposing ideology 
but rather leaning into and lodging herself more deeply into the way of Jesus. And so if you're wondering what I mean by ideology, ideologies on both sides, whether these are sort of leftist ideologies or ideologies from the right, they're marked by two things and two very basic features. One is that you take part of the truth, you take uh, what may have started out as true or a good idea, and you make it the whole truth. So it, like I said, it may start as the truth or a good idea, but because of our brokenness, because of um, the kind of fallen nature of our, our human nature, over time, this idea that started out as right can start to turn in on itself and become corrupt, kind of distorting the original motive that it was meant to be. Second, ideology is when you take a good thing and you make it ultimate. You make it the ultimate thing. And ultimately, what ideologies do is they put humanity and its desires and its ways and autonomy and its moral reasoning at the center instead of God at the center. So instead of God and his judgments of good and evil and his authority being at the center, we put our ideas at the center. And they will always, by that nature of us being on the center, they will always, out of our own brokenness and our own sin, they will just turn in on themselves and end up becoming corrupt and against the very thing that, the, uh, against the very thing that they started out being. So I said this a couple weeks ago, ideologies are ultimately wanting the kingdom of God without God. We want all the beauty of the kingdom and the justice and all the righteousness and all the, the good, harmonious, peaceful, joy, loving uh, way of being in the world without submission to the king himself. And so the truth is we were made to live in orbit around God, not for anything to live in orbit around us. And so this is actually taking something good and making it either ultimate or distorting it. And so this is what actually theologians, as they study scripture, would often describe as idolatry, where something that's good, we distort it or we uh, make it ultimate, make it the end-all, be-all. And then what was originally meant to be good uh, becomes a disordered desire or a disordered attachment, and then it turns into something ugly. And so, like I said, ideologists, ideologies often start out as theories or visions of a better society, but without God, they evolve into a metaphysical lens by which people see and interpret all of life. And it's so subtle, and it happens over time, uh, and it infects the whole culture that we often don't even realize how it's impacting us and how it's weaving its way into the way that we think and look at life and other people. And so often they offer us this alternative community, this sense of belonging, a sense of identity and purpose, as fragile as it might be. But again, all of it without God or even against God, even if they use his name to back it up. There was an interesting article by a person named Ben uh, Sixsmith, and he was actually describing um, kind of the sad, he described it as the sad irony of celebrity pastors. Um, but I just wanted to share a little quote from this article because I think it really speaks to what I'm talking about here. He says, there is mainstream culture, celebrities, fashion, music, 
modish political activism and a message of self-love, but with a twist of Christianity. Most people stick with mainstream culture because they can have all those things and premarital sex. We can see the with a twist of Christianity trend elsewhere. Falwell was representative of the right-wing business-oriented evangelicals who offer capitalist self-enrichment and hubristic jingoism with a twist of Christianity. Then there are progressive Christians of whom Nadia Bowles-Weber is an extreme example who promote the usual left-wing causes with a twist of Christianity. While different in belief, such people share patterns of thought. The former believe secular individualists mysteriously share God's wishes for what should be done with money, while the latter think that secular progressives mysteriously share God's wishes for what should be done with bodies. So if Christianity is such an inessential add-on, why become a Christian? I am not religious, so it is not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their beliefs should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there is nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their beliefs should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there is nothing especially inspiring about them. Enough said, right? I could just... <laughs> End the sermon right on that note. As we've been saying now for weeks, the culture is not looking, uh, people aren't looking for an echo of the culture. They're looking for an alternative to it. They're not looking for a culture which says, pick a side and winner takes all. You're either in this camp or you're in this camp. Isn't there something other? Isn't there something other than just joining a camp and accepting all of the ideologies and agenda that it represents? Today, I want us to consider that, yes, there is an alternative, and it's called the way of Jesus. See, the temptation of idolatry is not God or atheism. It's actually God or God and. It's this DIY faith where we take a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and we work God into our lifestyle, but ultimately, we are at the center. It's sort of this religious bundling. It's is the temptation. The temptation is to mix the way of Jesus with the way of this world. And that desire is ancient. That's been around from the beginning of time. The idolatry has always been a struggle for human beings. So the question that we need to ask ourselves is how can we continue to follow Jesus well when we're seeing leaders and beloved family members, brothers and sisters in the church being swept away by ideologies, both on the left and the right? How do we stay true to the way of Jesus? Well, look with me for just a minute at 2 Corinthians 10. It says, By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold towards you when away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. 
For though we live in the world, we do not wage wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now, Paul here is dealing with false prophets, with people who have come in and brought in extra ideas. They're trying to... uh, to take the way of Jesus, but add on or take away or tweak. And so he comes out right away, and and right out of the gate, he says, by humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. So there's no hate in his tone. There's no moral superiority. He's not trying to coerce or control people. He's calling people away from these ideologies, from these add-ons, um, and attempting to create this, our attempt, to, our our need to create this own version of heaven without submission to the Lord of Heaven. He's calling people away from that and back into allegiance to Jesus and His way. And so there were some in the church who who are confused and think that we live by the norm, the the moral norms and social expectations and value sets of the world around us. This was the same struggle back then. It's the same struggle we have now. And so if you're wondering what I mean by the world, when the New Testament uses the language world, it refers to a system of ideas, values, morals, and practices, and social norms that are integrated into the mainstream and eventually institutionalized in a a culture corrupted by rebellion against God and a redefinition of good and evil. That's basically Genesis 3 in a nutshell. Dallas Willard described the world as our cultural and social practices that are under the control of Satan and thus opposed to God. So in our current experience of the world, there's this leftist version, there's this right version, there's even a church version of the world. No matter where we find ourselves in this spectrum, we all struggle and feel this gravitational pull toward the world in lots of different ways. And we are called, and Paul is calling us here to resist that gravitational pull. He says, I beg you that when I come to you, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world, because we don't. He says, though we might live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. So we don't ever resort to violence. We don't resort to contempt to moral superiority. We don't troll each other in social media. How then do we resist? How do we resist this pull? Paul says the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Well, what are these strongholds? What does that mean? Strongholds start as a foothold by the enemy. So the enemy may gain a foothold by an environment we're spending a lot of time in, um, a lie that we've believed that's kind of taken root. It might be a habit that we formed or compromises we start to make. And over time, it grows into a stronghold in our lives. And in this text, Paul describes strongholds in two ways. He describes them as arguments. These are thoughts and words and ideas and pretensions. That would be um, described as exalted things, lofty opinions, warped philosophies, or in our case, ideologies. 
So he's describing these strongholds, these thoughts, these ideas, these ideologies that have taken root, that have, that have stronghold in our world, in our culture, and are starting to bleed into the lives of followers of Jesus. And so strongholds are arguments and ideologies that are animated by demonic power. And they are set up against Christ, and they are meant to enslave us rather than for us to enjoy the freedom found in Christ. And it's so subtle that you may not even recognize the kind of bondage that it's putting you in. And so Paul says the weapons we fight with have divine power to demolish these strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought, making it obedient to Christ. And Paul says the weapons we fight with have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So for Paul, the battle for our soul, for the soul of the church, is won or lost in the battlefield of the mind. There is a battle, and it is not between the left and the right, but it is actually between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, of which there is a red version and there is a blue version. And so as followers of Jesus, we wage war in our mind against these ideas, against ideologies, to make all of our life obedient to Christ. And we do this with the power, the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. And so how might we cooperate with the work of the Spirit? Is there a practice that we can take on that will set us up to become more aware of this gravitational pull? Uh, that become more aware of ideologies that lead us to the ways of this world? Is there a practice that will help us resist this pull and remain anchored and, and anchored in our allegiance to Jesus? I believe the practice is to become more immersed in Scripture. There's a body of truth that, that we can say as followers of Jesus that this is what it means to follow Jesus, that, that this is how followers of Jesus live. And the biblical word for this is actually called the way. It's the way of Jesus, and, and it's allegiance to Jesus as the way. It's, it's a trusting surrender to love. And, you know, this practice of becoming immersed in Scripture was first modeled to us by Jesus himself. And so, uh, you know, Jesus loved Scripture. He quoted it. He lived out of it. Um, you know, Scripture is a library of writings that are both human and divine, that together they tell a unified story that always leads us to Jesus. And so, you know, Jesus was a rabbi, and so basically that meant that he taught the Hebrew scriptures, and um, he would obey them as uh, an act of a form of surrender to the Father's love. To Jesus, scriptures were God-breathed truth. And then God raised Jesus from the dead as a vindication of Jesus' teachings as reality. And so we do not trust in Jesus because the Bible tells us to. We trust in the Bible because Jesus did. Because there was a man who did and said things that were never said before, that offered a vision for living and dying that was unparalleled. And he came back from the dead. And this is the man who taught the Bible and loved the Bible. And so we may have a lot of questions around the Bible. We may spend our lives 
um, being challenged by the Bible, and, and there's different interpretations of things within the church, but we trust Jesus' faith in the authority of Scripture. And so currently, we have minds that are full of digital input rather than saturated with the Scripture or with prayer. The Barna Group, which uh, is a group that does you know, regular surveys um, all over the place, but even specifically in the Christian world, uh, when they recently did a survey, um, they found that the average Christian millennial consumes around 3,000 hours of digital content a year, and only 150 of those it would be considered Christian content. So that is a ratio of 20 to 1. And the truth is, you become what you contemplate. You become what you give your attention to. And so we need to form some practices uh, and put some disciplines in place around uh, the kind of input that we're taking in, around our phones and social medias and screens, and move toward a more balanced ratio of what our minds are saturated in. And so the truth is, there's lots of ways to interact with Scripture, um, you can study it, you can memorize it, you can pray it, you can even listen to it. Uh, if you have uh, the Bible downloaded on your phone, you can actually have it read to you. Um, one form of, of interacting with Scripture is called Lectio Divina, where you kind of have it, you read it slowly um, or have it read to you, kind of washes over you. And if you like the idea of having it kind of read to you, then I've recommended this before. I love the Pray As You Go app. Because that's what it does. It takes a section of scripture and reads over a few times and just asks some reflective, contemplative questions. Um, if you're newer to faith and you don't really even understand scripture, know where to start, I could not recommend the Bible Project more as a great source of just finding out how the different books of the Bible work together in, in one large narrative of the people of God. And they have really well done little videos and explanations that are not dry at all. Um, they're very easy to follow. Uh, they're even, you know, interesting to an elementary age student. But they're uh, very sound um, and will give you a really good sense of how scripture works together. Consider forming a practice within community. So if you're, um, if you have another brother or sister that you have a relationship with, maybe you can say, hey, do you want to do a Bible plan together? Do you want to read through um, scripture together and, and chat about it once a week over the phone? Some of you are forming circles, and I'm hoping that your circle has decided um, to take on some form of, of daily scripture reading together. I know in our circle, we decided one of the members of our circle was already doing a read through the Bible in a year plan, and so we decided to jump on that bandwagon. And so we're all doing that, but we felt a little overwhelmed by it at first. So we're kind of breaking it up a little more slowly. So it might take us two years, but we're going to kind of journey through it together as a way to kind of support and hold each other accountable and hopefully move toward daily scripture reading. So our minds are more saturated through scriptures. Listen, for some of us, we don't interact with scripture at all. And some of us already have a regular um, daily practice. And most of us fall somewhere in that spectrum. The end goal is that we would move toward eventually a daily interaction with Scripture and to self-impose limits on other forms of, of digital media input in our brain. So towards screen time and different forms of entertainment in both the quantity, the frequency, and the moral nature of what we're ingesting. And so for you, that might mean 
watching, you know, doing a little less binge watching on Netflix and coming up with some kind of practice, whether it be the pray as you go or, or some kind of reading plan. Maybe your goal is to do it on the weekends and to keep adding to that. Um, but I really would recommend that you just, you know, find somebody in community and take a step forward, whatever that might look like for you. Listen, we all want the same things in life. We all ultimately want to be happy. We want to feel safe. We want to live with meaning and purpose. We want to live in community. We want to give and receive love. Um, and we want to know that our suffering means something and that in the end, we can face death without fear. These are all normal human longings. And because of those longings, we are led to put our faith in something. That's why ideologies are growing so rapidly, because people are longing for something to give them a sense of control, something to put their faith in, to anchor them in this world. And so the question is, what do you put your faith in? The culture says to put faith in yourself. We've talked about this before. Find the truth that resides in you and follow your heart and your sense of, of right and wrong and to speak your truth and to live your truth, live your best life. You know, Ignatius of Loyola, he defines sin as unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. So I would suggest that obedience to Jesus and his way is the willingness to trust that what God wants for you is only your deepest happiness, is to have faith in Jesus as the way for all of those human needs that you have. And so this practice of getting more saturated in scripture is a way to index ourselves away from the captivity of ideology and toward the freedom found in the way of Jesus, to demolish the stronghold that the enemy has in our hearts. And so we are called to obey as an act of faith in Jesus. Uh, we find that scripture is a vehicle for abiding in Jesus. Jesus said, if you abide in me, my words will abide in you. And so there, then his words began to take root. His ideas, his wisdom began to flow through us all day long and begin to inform our thinking to guide our mind into all truth so that we live into the freedom that Jesus bought for us on the cross.